Hello, it's good to see you. I'm Lisa. I'm Julie. And together we are Two Sober Chicks. Happy Thanksgiving to my American brethren. It is Thanksgiving today here in the United States of Amazing. <laughs> yes, until tomorrow when it becomes the United States <laughs> of Insanity and Hello Black Friday. Yeah. I was telling Lisa before we started recording, e, last year was my first American Thanksgiving. And um, at the dinner table, someone was like, do you all know what Black Friday is? I said, yeah, it's when you guys go fucking crazy. We see the news. We've seen the videos. I will not be going anywhere. We don't we don't pack to go shopping. <laughs> Pistol packing mamas. Mm -hmm. Look out. Let's hope everyone stays safe and remembers uh, that they were grateful today <laughs> before they go <laughs> crazy tomorrow Yeah, and lose the gratitude. Well, yes, it has been a while, hasn't it, since we've recorded and we were in the middle of our big book series. So we're picking up. This is episode seven uh, as Julie and I take you through our very own version of a little big book study. Uh, so, you know, hopefully if you're listening to them in succession one day. You can just hear all the episodes together. But if you've been waiting for a while, I'm sorry, it has been a while. Um, and we are on the doctor's opinion now. I think I'm going to make a playlist in SoundCloud so that people can listen to them all in a row. That's a good idea. That's a handy. <laughs> and you can do that on iTunes too, whatever platform you listen to us on. You can also make your own playlist. Oh. That's pretty cool. That is cool. That there might be a Julie and Lisa Two Sober Chicks playlist out there never know in itunes all right you want to get right into it yes meat and potatoes the doctor's opinion as found in the fourth edition of the big book it's numbered roman numeral style xxv that's page 25 roman numerals and it starts with the title the doctor's opinion capitalized we of alcoholics anonymous believe that the reader will be interested in the medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. Convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. A well-known doctor, chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital specializing in alcoholic and drug addiction gave Alcoholics Anonymous this letter. Is there anything you want to say before I read the letter? Mm, I have in all my times of reading this page, I have never let it sink in about the medical estimate. Like, what is that even? Is that the problem? The medical estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book? Are they giving us like the medical definition of what the problem is? Yeah, that's my okay. understanding of it is it's from Dr. Silkworth and it his, uh, it's his description or okay. estimate of what he believes is the problem of alcoholism, the root All of right. our problem. From a uh -huh. medical perspective. Okay, that makes sense now because this yeah. is Dr. Silkworth. All right. And the other thing I have circled is just the big letter uh, W, we. Um, mm -hmm. This we is the first 64, I think it was, or first they say the first 100 men and women mm -hmm. who got together to help um, bring this book about. Um. All right. So the letter from Dr. Silkworth, although at the time we did not know his name, he was just a well-known doctor and chief physician at a nationally prominent hospital to protect his anonymity. He wrote this letter to whom it may concern. I have specialized in the treatment of alcoholism for many years. In late 1934, I attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman of good earning capacity, was an alcoholic of a type I had come to regard as hopeless. In the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his re rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. This has become the basis of a rapidly growing fellowship of these men and their families. This man and over 100 others appear to have recovered. 
So I'll just pause here. The man that he's talking about is the one of the two founders of Alcoholics Anonymous, which is Bill Wilson, otherwise known as Bill W. Um, he was the competent and successful businessman of good earning capacity uh, until he lost his career and lost his job due to his alcoholism. Um, and he was deemed as hopeless. So I have hopeless uh, circled and underlined and highlighted. Um, and the conceptions uh, that he or his plan of rehabilitation that he presented uh, to other alcoholics came to him from his friend, Ebby Thatcher, who visited him after getting some of the uh, tenants from the Oxford group. So Ebby came to him and said, these are some of the things that you need to do in order to um, get well from the disease of alcoholism. And so then Bill would take that and start to pass that message on to other alcoholics in the hospital. Do you want to add anything? Not until the next line. All right. <laughs> I personally know scores of cases who were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. I have a little note uh, that is in between of and the, and it's a question. And it says, am I the type with whom other methods had failed completely? It's a good reflection point because most of us that end up in AA have tried all kinds of things. I mean, I tried logging my drinks. I've tried not holding my drinks. I tried um, cutting myself off at certain points. I tried different kinds of liquor. I tried drying out. I tried reading clinical studies of drugs that were supposed to take away cravings. Um, I tried every self-help new age approach. Uh, AA was, as a lot of us say, our the last door on the block, the last house on the block. And I think it's a good reflection point for us to see wh what was it like right before we walked into our first meeting. It's pretty grave usually. And that's a good thing to write down somewhere. Date it and write it down when you get to this point in the big book and keep it somewhere. Because if you don't get through the steps relatively quickly in the first few months, that window of opportunity starts to close and you start to get your old thinking back. Mm -hmm. and, and then you forget why you came here and you start to question maybe, am I an alcoholic? Been a while. Maybe I can drink again. So that would be a good time to pull out that reminder oh, wait a second, I am of the type mm -hmm. <laughs> who has tried this before and failed completely. Perfect. These facts appear to be of extreme medical importance because of the extraordinary possibilities of rapid growth inherent in this group. They may mark a new epoch in the annals of alcoholism. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. Are you laughing at yourself? Why can Every I time. never, never get through that line without giggling? I am. It's 12. because you of the way you say it. I say annals. Annals. <laughs> I probably said it wrong. So that's, that's why it makes me laugh. The annals of alcoholism. That would be a great group name. <laughs> <laughs> I've known a few annals of alcohol. Ah, <laughs> uh, the asshole group, right? Okay, so back to the text. These men may well have a remedy for thousands of such situations. Nothing a little preparation age can't fix. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. And all joking aside, I do have that line highlighted. You may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. I've written in the margin there, change, underlined it and highlighted it, an exclamation mark, because... Um, you know, I'm sure that every doctor that I've ever had could never have relied upon anything I could have said before because I wasn't telling the truth. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, Lisa, how many drinks do you have a week? Oh, maybe two. Why um, is it we always say two or a couple? A couple. Someone gets pulled over. My bestie is a police officer and it's always like, how many drinks have you had today? Oh, a couple beers, a couple glasses of wine. <laughs> yeah. Bullshit. Sure you have. Double yeah. that, triple that, quadruple that to the power mm -hmm. of 10. Now blow into this. Um, yeah. So that's a good, that's a cool thing because it really does highlight the change that happens to us. Um, not only have we gone through a spiritual awakening, uh, but it's a mental change. It's a shift in our perception. We go from being people who can't be relied upon or people who don't tell the truth 
to people who can absolutely be relied upon. And this is a, a doctor who we usually hold doctors in high esteem, right? And this is the doctor saying this about us. So that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Do you want to pick up the physician sure. who? Very truly yours, William D. Silkworth, MD. Oh, thank you. The, you're welcome. The physician who, at our request, gave us this letter has been kind enough to enlarge upon his views in another statement which follows. In this statement, he confirms what we who have suffered alcoholic torture must believe, which I have highlighted because that's exactly what it felt like at the end. You're nodding, you too. I am. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've been talking a lot about with my sponsees in our big book study that we're currently undergoing is how to pay attention to all the little words in the big book mm-hmm. that have huge impact, like must. Tiny short word, huge impact. It means it's imperative. We yeah. must believe. Um, it's important. So pay attention to those little words. Like, you know, it says, good restore us to sanity. Well, that's contingent upon us taking action with the rest of the steps. Yeah. If if we don't do the rest of the steps, you know, just wishing or praying for something to change isn't going to change it. You need to rely upon God, but you also need to take action with the rest of the steps. So all those- Yeah, it's not will, it's could, could, which means it requires your participation. Yes. Thank you. So yeah, we both have that uh, underlined and highlighted. Must believe that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. Thank you. Yes, and normal being the majority of people who can drink and nothing bad happens. We are the abnormal. I think it's like it used to be back in the day, it was eight out of 10 people could drink normally. I think it's less than that now. I think it's more than just, you know, 10 or 20% or whatever it is of people that can't drink normally. Um, It did not satisfy us to be told that we could not control our drinking just because we were maladjusted to life, that we were in full flight from reality or were outright mental defectives. These things were true to some extent, in fact, to considerable extent with some of us, but we are sure that our bodies were sickened as well. In our belief, any picture of the alcoholic which leaves out the, this physical factor is incomplete. I like how they put that in here. You know, if you're lucky enough to go to rehab, they teach you all of the science behind why an alcoholic's body is different and how we break down alcohol and what it does to our system in the pleasure centers of the brain. Um, I think when people talk about alcohol, alcoholism or addiction being a choice. Those are people that actually don't understand the um, chemical reactions in the body and how physiologically we absolutely are different. That's why the doctor's opinion changed my life because I went from thinking it was me and there was something wrong with me and my willpower to like, oh, that makes so much more sense to me now why it is something that I feel like I am powerless over. And I didn't go to rehab. I didn't have that explanation. Um, But I went to Joe and Charlie uh, big book studies, not with the original Joe and Charlie. I am not that ancient, almost. Um, But some of you would then uh, play the tape again. Or I went to a big book study that did Joe and Charlie's big book study. I've also listened to their speaker tapes, which are absolutely hilarious. And it helped Mm -hmm. break that down for me, that there's a physical allergy, that my body breaks down alcohol differently. And it really made me look at my two sisters and myself. And it was like, oh, that's why they stop after they get a little silly or a little giddy. And yeah. then they go, ooh, this is too much for me. And, and my body, my reaction is different. I'm like, that's not enough. Bring on more. I want more. Yeah, we don't have the off switch, the, no. the mechanism, or we had it at one time. And then we became alcoholic, alcoholic, because I remember a time where I could. And then one day I couldn't. It's the invisible line. Yeah. Um, I lost my thought. OK, I love this next line. The doctor's theory that we have an allergy to alcohol interests us as a layman. Our opinion as to its soundness may, of course, mean little. But as ex problem drinkers, I love how they say that. 
because we never say we're ex-alcoholics. But as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. I think this allergy notion is one of the most hotly contested priorities of the new AA member. Yeah. Why do you say that? Because a lot of us, including myself, think it's a cop out. Mm -hmm. But when we define allergy, which I think here it is Webster's definition condition of unusual sensitivity to a substance, which in like amounts does not affect others and is characterized by systematic disorders. So, you know, people will be like, yeah, but you know, they'll compare it to a peanut allergy or a gluten allergy or a strawberry allergy, which is true in that you're reacting to something quote unquote, normal people don't react to. Mm. You can't uh, put it in our system. I knew uh, my very first sponsor had a, an adverse reaction where he did, never had a hangover in his whole life. I've heard of that. He could just drink and drink and drink and drink and drink, and then he would black out. Um, probably because he would be getting alcohol poisoning at that time. That was not my experience. My adverse reaction was, <laughs> you know, uh, hangovers and and uh, blackouts and illness, vomiting and headaches and not being able to stop vomiting for two or three days. Um, so I'd say that is a nice allergic reaction to something that I'm putting in my body. My body is saying enough, get mm-hmm. rid of this, you know, just like if you have, well, you know, peanut allergies, they, they, their throat closes over and they swell up. But for a, a lot of allergies too, it's a physical sickness. And mm-hmm. I think ours is a physical sickness as well. I was just going to comment on that makes sense to me that they say as ex problem drinkers, and you're right, we never say as ex alcoholics, because we're always alcoholics, which means we cannot drink safely. Mm-hmm. But we become through Alcoholics Anonymous and the practice of the 12 steps, ex problem drinkers, because we're not drinking anymore. So therefore, we're not having those problems. Mm-hmm. I think that's why they say it. I love that. It's good to point out. So we work out our solution. Go ahead. Though we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic, which is unselfishly doing for others, plain, we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who is very jittery or befogged. More often than not, it is imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached, as he has then a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. Uh Um, That reminds me of... All that pounding is my husband walking around. I, I don't know how many more times I can say Zoom sucks in every sound. But anyways, um, uh, oh, it reminds me of like the one time that I actually saw my dad drunk. He was coming out of a binge, so he was still very drunk. Um, my dad is an alcoholic. He is a uh, binging alcoholic. Like he won't drink for three years and then he like really goes down. Anyways, trying to talk to him about anything in that state, let alone you have a problem, you can't do this, mm-hmm. is that's exactly what they're talking about here. I He doesn't even remember that conversation I had with them that night. So it's torture for me because every yeah. time he went to go downstairs for a drink, I'm like, I'm calling the police. <laughs> He'd be like, I just, just one more. I just, I'm like, nope, that's it. I'm picking up the phone. <laughs> oh God, it was hours of that because my mom had fled and I was there with him by myself. And I'm just like, oh. You know, this is like probably five years ago. So five years and basically more than five years into my own recovery. And it was the first time I had dealt with family alcoholism um, in the binge as opposed to after the binge. Right. Terrible. And this is one of the reasons why we tell why we are told I was told by my sponsor. And now I tell my sponsees who um, call me and say, so and so is drinking. My sponsee is drinking. What do I do? Well, go to this page, XXBII, and read it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this will tell you why um, there's no point in talking to them right now. If they are actively drinking, they're drunk, they're in a binge, they're in a state, there's no chance that they will understand or accept what you are saying. So hang up. Don't have the conversation. It's not going to make sense. Didn't make yeah. sense to me when I was drunk. Yeah. 
my uh, I was talking to my sister yesterday about said last binge that my parents were in. And um, she's like, my mom was like, well, what am I supposed to do in those moments? And Danielle's like, call Julie. She's an expert. And I said, no, don't call Julie. <laughs> don't call Julie. Call anybody else. Don't call Julie. <laughs> oh, when she was drunk, she was going to call you? No, it's this whole thing where my mom denies being a part of it. And she oh. just is like there experiencing my dad's binge and, of course, has nothing to do with it because she wants to protect his reputation with his children. And we're like, he's been doing this our whole lives. You can't possibly protect a reputation. He's already tarnished. <laughs> but, you know, she's like, well, what am I? Danielle's like, why don't you just go to a hotel if he's drinking and you don't want him to drink or pack up or like call someone like call Julie. She's an expert. I'm like, no, uh, no, <laughs> no. Call the police. Don't call Julie. Call the police. That's good. You know, you're uh, that kind of drinker when the answer is call the police. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a problem. No. <laughs> he's been to a he's been to I've brought him to AA meetings. Mm -hmm. It's very sad because he seems to really like them and identified. He nods his head when people are talking and he loves the slogans. And he got a desire chip one time from my sponsor who was chairing the meeting. Like it was awesome. Wow. And it's just like, you know, it's the problem of binge drinkers where the train wreck is behind them a lot of the time. Like I can not drink for two or three years, but then the car crash, the head on collision is so bad, it takes weeks or months to get over. And then, like you said, it's, they get so distant from it. They're like, well, you know what? It wasn't that big of a deal. It's not that bad of a problem. And on yeah. the outside, you're like, we go through this every year. It's a problem. Yeah. Like the police in this circumstance were like, I would form to your dad. He looks like he's close to death. Yeah. Like it's bad. We expect him to die as a result of these binges. And uh, my sister was telling my mom yesterday, you're enabling him. Like you think you're protecting him. He could fall down the stairs and die in a drunken stupor. And you've been there saying no, nothing to anyone to quote unquote, protect him. Like you're the worst offender. You're endangering him. Mm -hmm. And I don't think she'd considered that before. Which I think why... most people that protect the alcoholic don't realize they're actually like, forget enabling you're endangering them and everyone else that's connected to them. That's why Al-Anon is so important for people like your mom and uh, other people who have family members who are alcoholic. Um, that's the best way you want to protect them. You want to get them help. That's the best way. Stop enabling them. Stop making excuses for them, cleaning up after them, you know, trying to fix their messes or pretend they don't exist. Get yourself the help that you need to learn how to not do that. And that would be the best help. Yeah. Um, the doctor writes, the subject presented in this book seems to me to be of paramount importance. Paramount importance means above all else to those afflicted with alcoholic addiction. I say this. Did you want to stop? Nope. Okay. I say this after many years experience as medical director of one of the oldest hospitals in the country treating alcoholic and drug addiction. So this is an expert. This is a guy who knows his stuff. There was therefore a sense of real satisfaction when I was asked to contribute a few words on a subject, which is covered in such masterly detail in these pages. This is why it's so important. A lot of people skip the Roman numeral pages of the book and they're missing, this mm -hmm. is coming from a medical professional who is telling you that everything that comes in this book afterwards is masterly, uh, is masterful, right? Covered in masterly detail. So it, he's saying this idea works. Um, we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance alcoholics. I have written in the margin, psychic change. Um, there has to be a change in our thinking. I but have spiritual experience written over moral psychology. Nice. All right. But its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we perhaps are not well equipped to apply the powers of good 
that lie outside of our synthetic knowledge. So I have God written over good. Nice. <laughs> I have a power greater than ourselves. <laughs> so that's amazing. Um, and I also have here, the number one doctor for alcoholism at the time is saying he knows that a doctor isn't capable of giving me what I need, which equals the spiritual experience. Yeah. That's exactly, that's basically what I was going to say. Here we have a top medical professional who, who deals in the business of alcohol treatment, alcoholic treatment and addiction treatment. And he's saying, we're not well equipped enough. He has all kinds of degrees, experience and time. But what he's saying is we need more than just understanding the problem. His job as a doctor is to say, this is the problem. You have an allergy. You can't drink safely. But there's a second part of the problem. And who's going to help you with that is other ex-problem uh, drinkers, <laughs> is other mm -hmm. alcoholics, people who have um, overcome the disease of addiction. So many It's interesting because so many people that enter the rooms are very skeptical about the experience of AAs, thinking that they're making it up or they're lying or it's a cult. But that's we rely on other people's experiences everywhere else like a person who fix a car, a person who takes a medication, a person who also had the same issues as your child did. Like we seem, we need other people's real world experience, not just documents written on a website or what you find on Google or whatever people may gain source from. Like we're human beings. And so we need to rely on the experience of other human beings when going through something we haven't been through before. And this is a whole fellowship of people that are working on or have triumphed over their addiction and their experience needs to be taken seriously. And I love it because it's such a vast array of experiences, like everything you have ever been through as an alcoholic, someone in a has gone through it, if not hundreds and thousands. Yeah. Which is a perfect example of you are no longer alone. That mm -hmm. great slogan. Doesn't mean I'm going to have a, you know, be surrounded by friends instantly. <laughs> For me, it meant, oh, I'm no longer alone in that experience or in that suffering. I'm not the only person who has been victimized by my disease. Other people have had the same experience, meaning I'm no longer alone in that experience. That's what it meant for me. I like when a speaker talks about how they wet the bed when they, um, have been drinking and how many people are like nodding their heads in the audience, like the most shameful things you have ever done while on drugs or on alcohol is like, eh, no big deal in the rooms. I've eh, been there, done that. I love when someone shares something that has like ruined them and there we like people laugh out loud yeah. because we're not laughing at you. We get you been yeah. there, done that. We're which is usually what? which is the opposite response from what you get in therapy, which is like they're there or you need to forgive yourself or they validate. It's like, no, we laugh at it. Yeah. Uh -huh. Like I remember one time listening to this speaker tape about this guy that talked about how he totally ruined Christmas. He got drunk. He knocked over the Christmas tree. The house caught on fire. His children were crying and we're all laughing because we totally get it. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> all right, continuing on, we're on page XXVII, if you're following along. And we're still in the part where the doctor writes. And we're at uh, many years ago, one of the leading contributors to this book came under our care in this hospital. And while here, he acquired some ideas, which he put into practical application at once. At once which is a great reminder of how you do the steps at once. Mm -hmm. Later, he requested the privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here. And with some misgiving, we consented. Can you imagine today? Like, no. hey, I'm an alcoholic. I'd like to go around and talk to some of your uh, drug and alcohol addicted patients at uh, CAMH, the Center for Disease and Addiction here in Toronto. They'd be like, no, thanks. We're going to practice harm reduction. <laughs> 
it's like this, especially back in that day where the hierarchy of treatment was doctors only. I mean, listen, we just came through a pandemic where that was the case, like individual experience was nothing. It's what the experts tell you. So back in this day, like today, if you walked into a hospital and was like, I'm going to talk to these group of people about my experience and what helped me be arrested. Um, <laughs> back in that day, I just, I can't believe they allowed it. Some things have changed and some things have not. So that, that also made me laugh, but yeah, they were like, okay, yeah. All right. little misgiving, but go ahead, go run around the hospital telling other alcoholics how you got well. Maybe it's because the medical professionals back then, maybe today were worse. Maybe today the medical professionals are much more arrogant. And back then they were like, well, we can't help these people. They kind of gave up and was like, I mean, go for it. We can't do it. Isn't this why they kind of liken Dr. Silkworth to a medical saint? Because he did have humility. Hmm, I like that. He had a lot of humility by saying things like, um, you know, they've got more mastery, masterly detail than I do at understanding this problem. And I'm the head of this alcohol and drug addiction center. Um, yeah. So I think he was a very humble person. He, he saw a change in Bill. He saw that change and mm. he relied on that change. Well, you must know something because look at you i deemed you hopeless and here you are walking a free man from the disease of alcoholism mm. uh so they consented the cases we have followed through with have been most interesting in fact many of them are amazing the unselfishness of these men as we have come to know them the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. Capital uh, P power in the book. Thank I you. I.e. Yeah. God. And it's underlined and highlighted. And it also, this really highlights the change that an alcoholic like Bill had undergone. He had definitely had a spiritual awakening. So he went from being, you know, as you get into the next chapter, when we go into Bill's story, we'll hear things like how he used to make his wife ride around on the back of his motorcycle. His precious volumes of research were in the sidecar where it was comfy and warm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and he's making her ride around on the, uh, or he'd pay off his bills at the delicatessen so that he could drink more while she was going to work and he was at home getting lit. You know, he was selfish and self-centered to the core. And now here he is being described by the doctor after his recovery as unselfish, um, uh, entire absence of profit motive, community spirit. And that's just amazing. The change that has happened in him because of this process. Mm. Of course, an alcoholic ought to be freed from his physical craving for liquor. So here they are reminding us that sometimes detox is required first. So that's the medical part. Uh, for your physical problem. Uh, and this often requires a definite hospital procedure before psychological measures can be of maximum benefit. Again, you know, you can't sell an alcoholic on the idea of uh, abstinence. Well, he's drunk. <laughs> Dry out, don't take the first drink is what mm -hmm. I have. Do you want to read? We believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy, semicolon, that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic, allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. And once having formed the habit and found they cannot break it, once having lost their self-confidence, their reliance upon things human, their problems pile up on them and become astonishingly difficult to solve. Hmm. I love how they say once having formed the habit. That takes effort. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of us will say after the first drink, we knew we were an alcoholic. Um, mine, but I think more people have had to work on the habit a little bit before it's become ingrained. And once ingrained, unless a miracle happens, and I know a few people who are, it just left them one day, um, it will always be there, which is why you can't safely drink or drug ever again. 
because that pathway's there and your brain recognizes it. It knows what to do. It likes it. And it goes back into its old patterns. Um, I have written here, if you can't drink because of the allergy of the body, and if you can't quit because of the obsession of the mind, then you are powerless over alcohol. And mm-hmm. that's what happens um, when we're talking about the phenomenon of craving. This is a perfect description of the disease of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. Never being able to safely drink alcohol again. Mm-hmm. Okay. You're at frothy emotional appeal. Frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. The message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth and weight. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. And I love the recreate thing because some people just want their lives back. And I think, no, I don't want my old life back because that's the reason I'm here. I need to be able to commit to recreating my life in a better way in order to be sober and recovered. But when we first come in, uh, I would when I first came in, I'll keep it to me, I was sick and delusional. And mm-hmm. I didn't want my old life back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the great thing is, is that the longer you stick around and the more you apply the steps in your life and do the work and follow the suggestions, you will come to this awakening where you realize, oh, it's good that I didn't get my old life back. <laughs> Or things didn't get just like, you know, it's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. It's still going down. Mm-hmm. I don't want to get back on the Titanic. I want to get on a boat that sails. So I love that idea of recreating too. But when I was early, I didn't understand the difference between recreating yeah. and just getting back. I just wanted my old life back. But thank God I didn't get my old life back. But I, it's, again, it's experience. You have to believe the people that are telling you that they can't believe the gift of the life they've been given and trust in that and see for yourself. And then you get to say, oh, okay, now I know the difference. If I got my old life back, I just get my old habits back. Yeah. And uh, if life was that great, you wouldn't have ended up in AA anyways. And you were a person who had uh, what a lot of people would consider everything, mm-hmm. you know, um, beauty. <laughs> oh, I thank you. <laughs> you have your looks. Um, you had, you had money, you had wealth, you were married to a wealthy man. You guys mm-hmm. wanted for nothing. You had several mm-hmm. homes, um, fancy cars. And were you happy? <laughs> no, I was lonely and miserable. It's funny. Cause yesterday I was, um, putting up the own the cr- first Christmas decoration that I have down here. I'm still in process for a green card. Therefore, I am not allowed to ship any of my contents down here. Even though um, in those contents, there's not more than like a bucket of Christmas decorations. I was so mad yesterday because in my former married life, I had like a room full of Christmas stuff. I had multiple trees. I had Christmas lights. I had moving villages. I had signs. I had blankets. Like I had everything. And I was telling my sister, um, I just want to point out that I have one garland and it really chaps my ass that I have to spend money on Christmas decorations when I had like a locker full of them, however many years ago it would be, I guess 10 years ago. Yeah, we're coming up on 10 years um, between uh, of my divorce. Um, But then I think about that old life. And yes, I had an amazing Christmas wonderland house all decorated. But I was so sad and so lonely and so addicted to alcohol. And it was a miserable existence, um, which just goes to show like the outward circumstances are never representative uh, in alcoholism or addiction of the inward. Like it's the inner bottom we get to that ruins us. And sometimes it is in it's congruous with our outer circumstances, but a lot of times it isn't. And you'll get your decorations one day, one day. Well, not the, the storage room full, but like no. the Rubbermaid bin full. That you I have, definitely, yes. I yeah. definitely will. And another um, great thing is I purposely left all of that behind, like all of the furniture, all of the art, all of the dishes, all of everything. Because for me, that was part of a life that um, I didn't want 
It was, I am a person that attaches meaning and significance to objects. And I don't want stuff from a previous life. I also don't believe that I was entitled or deserved any of it. Not that I was like, I don't deserve anything. I'm unworthy. But I just reject the notion that when a woman leaves, she takes half or everything. Um, because that's not acknowledging <clears throat> what the marriage was in, in its totality. And plus, he had a daughter and I'd be removing all that stuff from her life, too. So um, I am grateful for this new life where I get to recreate Christmas with my new husband and have it be our memories attached to stuff. So I think gratitude is definitely one of the highest um, best tools we can use in recovery, especially at the beginning when we're not grateful at all. We're just resentful and try to get a resentful new alcoholic to be grateful. They will cut you. They will cut you. There is a time and a place. Only an old timer can broach that with a new alcoholic because you'll get hurt. <laughs> yeah. I love the gratitude list suggestion. Why don't you write a gratitude list? What the fuck do I have to be grateful for? All right. I was so mad at that in the beginning and I genuinely could not pull anything out of the air that mm -hmm. my sponsor would be like, and you can't mention air, food, water, or a roof over your head. And I was like, Oh, cause those were the only things only I things. could think of. Yeah. <laughs> um, Oh, I was going to give you homework today as your friend. I think uh, on your Thanksgiving day, when you go out for your Thanksgiving dinner with your husband, um, oh, things are closed, right? Everything okay. is closed. Oh, I was going to send you to buy one ornament together. Oh, maybe Walmart's open. And then you'll have always open. one, you'll have that new memory and it'll mm -hmm. be that one ornament. I and do have one country. from last year where it was like our first Christmas as Mr. and Mrs. That's nice. Go cut a tree. We had a little teeny tiny tree. This year we're getting a, like a real tree because now we live in a house as opposed to a, a condo, an apartment. Yeah. It's on the up and up. <laughs> Things are looking up. <laughs> Things are I looking have, up for this girl. You'll have two ornaments and a garland and a tree <laughs> and a partridge and a pear. All right. Uh, if any feel that as psychiatrists, directing a hospital for alcoholics we appear somewhat sentimental let them stand with us a while on the firing line see the tragedies the despairing wives the little children let the solving of these problems become a part of their daily work and even of their sleeping moments and the most cynical will not wonder that we have accepted and encouraged this movement again i've written humility next to that we feel, after many years of experience, that we have found nothing which has contributed more to the rehabilitation of these men and, uh, than their altruistic movement now growing up among them. So this doctor, in all his experience and with all his degrees, is saying nothing works as well in the rehabilitation of alcoholics than AA. That is in black and white. That's the altruistic movement they're talking about. Mm -hmm. Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. How true. Because um, a lot of us talk about how we didn't like the taste. You know, I don't know why I drank. Oh, I do know why. But that's the reason mm -hmm. right there. Why mm -hmm. did I drink gin and tonic? That is the most disgusting drink flavor that you can ever ingest it's bitter it's gross and yeah oh i that, love it that was my drink i oh, love it it tastes like drink. medicine yeah and, well it was medicine julie it was our <laughs> medicine <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> give me a double dose of that and that's how i drank it um because i liked the effect that it produced mm -hmm. oh this is good so another thing um I've also put in the margin here, this is a good qualification. So I don't know if they do this down at meetings in the United States, but up here in Canada, when the chairperson chairs a meeting, one of the things they do is say, I'm supposed to qualify. And this is how people in the room who are new know that the person up at the front isn't a special leader or a secretary or, you know, the whatever business director, they are just another alcoholic. And they do that by qualifying. This is what qualifies me to chair this meeting is 
when I drank alcohol, I couldn't control myself. I had no control over when I would stop drinking. Alcohol controlled me, and I got to a point where I couldn't stop drinking. Um, that qualifies me. That's usually people say something like that. I've mm. put here because I didn't know how to qualify in the beginning. This is a good way of qualifying. So um, it's another way of identifying and relating. Instead mm -hmm. of finding what's different between myself and the book or myself and other people, I have learned to relate to. And how I did that was by changing things um, to personalize it. So you'll notice that I've changed some of the words. So uh, Lisa drinks essentially because she likes the effect produced by alcohol. She finds the sensation so elusive that while I admit it is injurious, I cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. To Lisa, her alcoholic life seems the only normal one. Mm. I am restless, irritable, and discontented unless I can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks. Drinks which I see other taking, others taking with impunity. Those fucking bastards. Mm -hmm. I hate those people. After I have succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomena of craving develops, I pass through the well-known stages of a spree. Why is it well-known? Because Lisa's been here before. Mm. Emerging remorseful, with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless I can experience an entire psychic change, there is very little hope for my recovery. So I've totally personalized that statement. I can mm -hmm. basically read that, and that would be my entire qualification at any alcoholics immediately. Yep, totally. I have um, over the top of that paragraph a really neat reflection, which is, do I believe that in recovery I must experience the sense of ease and comfort that I got by drinking? If not, will I give in to the desire to drink again? Um, we have to get comfortable with the fact that it is not, we don't get launched into heaven just because we go into Alcoholics Anonymous where everything is like utopia and we never suffer again. We have to be big boys and girls and realize that life includes suffering. It's part of the problem. And we can't just go running back to the drink or the drug, what I would call mommy. We can't go running back to mommy every time things don't work out the way we want them to. That's escapism. That's not living in reality. We will have amazing moments and we will have hard moments. But at least when you're sober, you don't pay for the way that you've coped in those bad moments. Yeah. It's the difference between accepting something and accepting something begrudgingly. Mm. If I accept something begrudgingly, I'm not really accepting it and I'm not really having a lot of peace around it, I think. Mm -hmm. you know, I need to accept things as they are. And, and life, as you said, has suffering in it. Life has loss. It also has joy and it has laughter and it has good times. It's yeah. not, but it's not like that all the time. It can't be. It just I like can't. it when alcoholics are like, well, if you had my problems, you'd drink too. And then I hear of people who've had horrific, horrific things in their lives and never drank or drugged or anything mm -hmm. and have just sat in their suffering and dealt with it. Yeah. Like yeah. emotionalism drives me crazy. You know, your feelings won't kill you. They might feel like they are, but drugging and drinking will. Yeah. So. And when you're done drugging and drinking, your feelings are there. They're still and worse. Back. Yeah. yeah, now you've put on the backpack of what you've done in order to cope. Um, I also had something happen in a big book study recently, and uh, and then I wrote it in my book, and it had never been in there until this year. Um, it was when I was reading uh, Restless, Irritable, and Discontent, unless I can again experience the sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once now, um, and that happens today, the ease and comfort comes when I reach out to my higher power and mm. I surrender my will and I surrender my ego in that act, I start to feel a little bit better. Mm -hmm. 
And I used to only get that ease and comfort from alcohol and drugs, from checking out, basically. I was just checking out. And now it's the opposite. I don't check out. I check in. Hmm. I check in with my higher power. And I am honest. And uh, I say, this sucks. (laughs) This hurts. (laughs) I'm suffering. Or I don't like this plan. But I trust you. Yeah. My faith is in you. Yeah. And, he knows you don't like it. Your higher power knows you don't like it. Your higher power knows you're suffering. Whether or not you feel God around you is not indicative of God not or being around you. God is a higher power, a complex being, one will never understand, but whose presence is around all the time. And it's okay to be mad at God and not feel him and be angry and rage at him. Like, go for it. And often God will send you little emissaries or moments in your day if you can't feel the big presence of your higher power just to help you. He will never, ever, ever, ever leave you. But often, and I've had these times where I just feel the complete absence of God and I'm mad. It's people in this program. It's other people where I'm like, okay, that was that was an angel today and that was my sign that I'm not alone. Because again, if you put all your faith in like, I'm God is, I'm always going to feel God and that's what's going to help me. You're, it's not going to work. It just, that's not the human experience. That's suffering. That's a big part of our existence. Um, I read something. It's funny just the other day, and I'm so glad that I get to put it into this podcast. It said, and you just reminded me with the word, I think it was adversity. And so I found this email just like that. Each day, God gives us a new challenge. Sometimes, it is prosperity. Did you ever think about that? I, I think about that a lot. The challenge is prosperity when mm-hmm. I'm doing well. And that caught my mm-hmm. attention. So then I read mm-hmm. on sometimes adversity. Prosperity can lead to complacency. Mm-hmm. Adversity to self-pity. Either one of these reactions is a luxury I cannot afford. I do not always fully accept my adversities as good while I am going through them. But the mere fact that I am now able to write these words proves the logic in my faith that God is good. And that's from something called Came to Believe, uh, page Mm. 87. Yeah, that's a a Hazleton publication, if I'm not wrong. You can find them at a lot of meetings. So I just, that was, that just jumped out. I love that. Never heard that wording before that prosperity could lead to complacency. Cause isn't that what we are Mm -hmm. always asking? I just want things to go for, go right for me. I want Mm -hmm. things to go well. I want life to be easy. You know, I'm tired. Thank you very much. I would like no more suffering, (laughs) no more adversity. I just want prosperity. Mm -hmm. And then this, then I got this reading that it could lead to other things like complacency. And what happens when I'm complacent as an alcoholic? I don't do the things I need to do. I don't Mm -hmm. rely on God. I don't bother with a conscious contact. I don't even pray if things are going well, if I'm complacent. Yeah. A lot of times people are treated poorly because of they are perceived as having prosperity. So whether it's looks, material value, maybe they're I have gotten the comment before that maybe I'm not a real alcoholic because it doesn't look like I suffer that much in my alcoholism. Like it looks like it's easy for me. And that person was not wrong, but it's easier to be sweet and gentle and kind to someone that you know is suffering and really not towards someone who's not suffering because why would you need to accept that posture with them? So uh, prosperity in any regard is often um, people mistreat that person based on their perception. It's like, I can't remember what the saying is, but it's sort of like, don't judge a book by its cover. Like, don't judge someone's outward circumstances as representative of what they've gone through. Because a lot of us high bottomers also really are great actors and actresses. And you have no idea what's going on beneath the surface. Just because someone is joyful or grateful, it doesn't mean they haven't suffered. Or put together nice. Yeah. I looked great when I came into the rooms. But for like, if you knew what you were looking for, which was like a spiritual aura of happiness and peace, people would not have 
at all thought that I had a problem in my life. And thank God the old timers knew what they were looking for and was like, ooh, yeah. And that first woman that I ever saw at a meeting that greeted me, she's the only one that can really tell me because she's the only one that's still around. Like the difference is night and day. Like you're so bright and shiny now. You look the same, but your appearance is totally different Mm -hmm. because it's an inner thing. It's not an outer thing. Yeah. I think it's in the eyes. You can see in people's eyes. Doesn't matter. Totally. It's why a lot of these sober accounts, people will do like a side by side of their face before and after. And even when they're all like well put together, you can see that like deadness. That was the thing that jarred me out of my alcoholism was one day walking by a mirror and be like and looking in it and being completely devastated at what I looked like a dead person. And it was that eye thing that we're talking about. Yeah. Deadness in the eyes. Yeah. Okay. Back to the uh, doctor's opinion. XXIX. That's the page that we're on at the top there. And I just finished at um, there is very little hope of my recovery. On the other hand, do you want to continue? Sure. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, Once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol, the only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. Mm-hmm. Men have cried out to me in sincere and despairing appeal. Doctor, I cannot go on like this. I have everything to live for. I must stop, but I cannot. You must help me. Based with this problem, if a doctor is honest with himself, he must sometimes feel his own inadequacy. Although he gives all that is in him, it is often not enough. One feels that something more than human power is needed to produce the essential psychic change. Though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, we physicians must admit we have made little impression upon the problem as a whole. Many types do not respond to the ordinary psychological approach. Um, And I just have change and spiritual awakening uh, written all along the side of this. Um, And the other thing I like here is uh, though the aggregate of recoveries resulting from psychiatric effort is considerable, I think that psychiatric is effort um, also has induced a psychic change in a lot of people. It's a change in their thinking. It's a change in their behavior. They might call it moral psychology. We call it a spiritual change, a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very similar. And I love today how many people in AA use both. I am always saying to my sponsees, I'm not your therapist. Go read pages 60 to 63 and then call me back. Mm-hmm. And then when they call me back, I say, you might want to also get a therapist because I'm not, mm-hmm. in. you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a qualified medical professional. I'm not a therapist. I can only share with them my experience. Um, and I love how people today, it seems, are marrying these two. Mm-hmm. And there's thankfully still a lot of psychologists, therapists, uh, psych- psychiatrists out there who fully support and believe in AA and yeah. will work with it instead of against it. I have seen a few cases where um, people have said, oh, my psychiatrist hates AA. Well, find a new one. I find that often the program is the psychology I need to get over something. Like when my parents went on said last bender, I called my therapist and she was away. So I called my sponsor. Mm -hmm. When my therapist got back, She was like, do you still need to see me? And I said, no, I called my sponsor. She's like, that's amazing. I'm glad you worked through it. And what my sponsor said was, this isn't between you and your parents, Julie, because they're going to continue to do what they're doing. The problem cannot be them because then you make them the solution. This is between you and God. This is about accepting what's going on with them and Mm -hmm. learning how to do loving detachment, um, forgiveness, that's the crux of the issue is you're holding yourself hostage somehow to this issue with your parents and it's going to be worked out. And after an entire lifetime, chances are it's not going to be worked out. 
So it's not actually with them. It's with your trauma. It's with this feeling of powerlessness, hopelessness, helplessness, rage, resentment. And I was like, at first I was like, no. And then it took a couple of seconds for over 10 years of recovery to sink in. And then I was like, fuck you. You're right. (laughs) So I don't know if my therapist would have gone there with me. But as soon as I got off the phone call, I was like relieved of this. And it's not that it doesn't come back to play on me because that's normal. We're human beings. We have emotions. There's a lot of trauma in our childhood. Like it's not solved forever. But then I remember what the crux of the issue is and it's acceptance and it's love and it's forgiveness and it's boundaries. It's all of those things. I remember seeing a psychiatrist for work-related incidents because I'd been assaulted uh, <laughs> um, and on the job. And um, so I was seeing a psychiatrist who diagnosed me with PTSD. But then a lot of times uh, as we're talking and going through these sessions, I would talk about how I'd talk to my sponsor and how I'd use my sponsor and things that my sponsor and I had come to discuss. And I remember her just looking at me and saying, like, I don't know how much more I can help you. Like you seem to be mm-hmm. good. And mm-hmm. I'm well, yeah, still like somebody to talk to. And I think I need to be here. But yeah, it was very bizarre to be in this place where a psychiatrist was looking at you saying, you're actually doing very well. You know, you're doing the right things. You're using the tools that you need to. That's and I was awesome. like, please don't get rid of me yet. <laughs> I don't know if I'm ready. Hmm. But yeah, it's kind of neat how um, AA did help with all of that stuff as well. Yep beautiful program. All right. Continue. I do not hold with those who believe that alcoholism is entirely a problem of mental control. I have had many men who had, for example, worked a period of months on some problem or business deal, which was to be settled on a certain date favorably to them. They took a drink the day or so prior to the date. And then the phenomenon of craving at once became paramount to all other interests so that the important appointment was not met. These men were not drinking to escape. They were drinking to overcome a craving beyond their mental control. There are many situations which arise out of the phenomenon of craving, which cause men to make the supreme sacrifice rather than continue to fight. This is why meetings and fellowship and spiritual program and all of these things are so important because it's like a boxer who trains and then stops training six months before a match. Like he's already given up the fight. He's not prepared. And it's really easy to give in if you're not strong in your program. So that's often why people will say right before they relapse, well, I stop going to meetings like they stop training for the fight. And it's not that we have to be fearful, but our alcoholism is just one step behind us. It's just waiting to catch up with us. So if you're not working towards recovery, you're definitely working towards relapse. Against it. Yeah. Um, Not that I subscribe to meeting makers make it because I do not. (laughs) I agree. But it is uh, definitely a way that we do 12-step work by carrying the message, by listening to the message, um, by reading, by being there for sponsorship or temporary sponsorship. Um, And yeah, it's just about staying in the middle. If I'm not, like, uh, I can't tell you how many times my wife has said to me in the last year, oh my God, you're doing like, you know, it's like she likes me all of a sudden. But (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean... She said, the only complaint I had about you was you were a little bit grumpy at times. Um, and she said, like, a lot of that has gone away. Um, and she doesn't like the fact that I have a certain number of sponsees. She thinks it's too many. Um, however, the results are that because I am working constantly with women in the program, um, I'm constantly in the center of AA. So the mm-hmm. more you stay actively engaged in your program, I think the healthier you can be. Although Mm -hmm. I have recently learned to get rid of some of my commitments because you don't want to overextend yourself. There's such Mm. a thing as too many commitments. Yes. Yes. There's a balance. Doesn't keep you sober if you overextend yourself. Yeah. We are at the wonderful part of five types of alcoholics. This is, you want to stop here? Okay. Yeah. Let's stop here. (laughs) Okay. 
Boop, boop, boop. So Big next time, we'll pick it up the five types of alcoholics and what is the solution as we finish off the doctor's opinion. Amazing. And then we'll be into Bill's story after that. Always a good one. Yes. All right. Well, that's it. That's our big book study for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, yeah, I guess we have been talking for a while. Um, thanks for being a part of our big book study. And as always, thanks for listening to Two Sober Chicks. If you have uh, any suggestions for future topics, we are doing topics still. We're just doing the big book study right now. Um, you can email us at the number two sober chicks at gmail.com. Thanks for joining us on Two Sober Chicks. I'm Lisa. <laughs> I'm Julie. Happy 24. <laughs>